You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Um, again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. So when you get there, if you would and are able, would you please stand with me for, God's, for the reading of God's word? Starting in verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys may be seated. Good morning. Make sure I'm, okay, there we go. All right, we're live. First of all, you adults need to step your singing up. Those kids, they out, they outshine every single one of you. I, I heard it sitting on my desk, and I'm like, I got to go in there. From what I hear, that was specifically Maddie Murdoch, who was, so you guys are training them well. It's awesome. Oh, my name is uh, Ty Gaston. I am uh, one of the pastors here at Providence Community Church. Uh, it is a joy of mine to be able to uh, preach the word this morning and especially to open up the series, as Lauren said, in the book of Mark. Uh, I am really, really excited about uh, this series. I think that if we look back over the last year, going through the book of Exodus and spending our entirety, the entirety of our year in one single book, being able to do that again through the book of Mark is, is going to be, in my opinion, in my preference, even better. Because Exodus was 40 chapters in a year. This one will be 16 chapters in a year. So we get, we'll get to camp out and park in a few other places, and we won't have to preach 40 to 50 verses at a time. So I'm very excited about that personally. Uh, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us because we really do have a lot of work to do this morning. Um, and uh, we will get moving. If you would, bow your heads. Father God, we come before you this morning and what a joy, what a mercy, what a grace it is to sit underneath your word, your ancient, timeless word. God, it is timeless, but it is also timely for us this morning. And so God, as we sit underneath what you may have to say to us. God, we just ask that you would shape our hearts, shape our minds, allow our internal countenance to be postured towards you. God, we need you. That can only be done by your work and your spirit. And so God, I just pray that as your word goes forward, that you would create fertile soil in our soul to receive it and that it may grow and flourish and blossom. So God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So to get started, we're going to have to do a little bit of background work in order to set the context and stage for this series, because I do think that the first eight verses that we're going to look at here sets the tone and sets the horizon for what the rest of the book is going to be about. So a couple of things. 
the Gospel of Mark uh, was written by a man named John Mark. He was not a disciple. Um, John Mark was actually the cousin of Barnabas, who we saw in the book of Acts. Um, he's also the man responsible for creating the friendship division between Paul and Barnabas. Uh, John Mark actually gets sick and chooses to not go on the, um, the mission with Paul. Paul gets really mad. Barnabas, who's his cousin, starts arguing, and then they decide to part ways at that point. Now, it does recover because we learn later on in life, John Mark actually becomes very useful to Paul, and, uh, and they become really close. But like I said, John Mark was not a disciple. Uh, in fact, it is largely regarded that this account that we're reading is not John Mark's account, but it is Peter's account. Uh, and it won't take you long as we go through the book for you to realize that Peter is the champion of this text because he finds ways to insert himself as the chiefest of all disciples uh, throughout the entirety of the book. So outside of Jesus, Peter is the champion of this gospel. Uh, it's also a very simple text, um, and it doesn't really point to a lot of details that some of the um, some of the other gospels do. It has less than a third of all the other parables. Uh, it's just that it wasn't the point. The point was to tell of the Savior Jesus. And it was also written to Romans, so this is important. Uh, when we look at a book of the Bible, it's important to figure out who the audience is, who is it written to, who is it written by. And this one in particular was written to Romans and not to Greeks. And Romans weren't really known for their uh, intellectual nature. It was uh, every commentary I read basically in a nice way said that they're stupid. And, uh, and, and that's, that's really, if you wanted to boil it down to it, that's what it was. They weren't like the Greeks who loved philosophy. They just wanted it straightforward. In fact, their entire life philosophy could have been labeled underneath ready, shoot, fire, think later. That, that's, that's really their, their style of doing things. So prior to this gospel being written, uh, Nero had come into power into the land. And for about five years leading up to 65 AD, when this book was written, for about five years, Nero led largely with peace and with a calm demeanor towards the people. But after those five years, he began to lead with cruelty and immoral behavior. And in 64 AD, uh, there was a gigantic fire that absolutely devastated the city of Rome. Uh, it's, it's, up, it's, it's said that upwards of 80% of the city was destroyed by this fire. And we really don't have any kind of modern day equivalent that we have experienced like this. Even as bad as Hurricane Harvey is, we would not have seen anything like this. This fire raged for seven days. It seemed like it was getting under control and starting to go out, and then it just exploded again. And so it absolutely destroyed the city. And many suspected that Nero actually created the fire himself out of a fit of rage, but to avoid any suspicion, blamed it on the Christians and blamed it on their, uh, their pension for uprisal and blamed the Christians for it. And in doing so, uh, they began to martyr or kill the Christians. And they did it by feeding them to feral dogs. Uh, they dipped them in tar and lit them, up, lit them on fire and put them as kind of light posts for Nero's garden. They, uh, they fed them to lions in the Colosseum. And all of these things were done because Nero did not want to own up to something he had done. It's also widely regarded that the Gospel of Mark was written in 65 AD, just a year after the big fire and right in the middle of the Christians who were suffering underneath Nero's reign. And this is likely the reason for this very first gospel. Now, in chronologically, it's not first, right? Matthew's first, but Mark is regarded as the first gospel that's written. And it was likely because of this suffering that the, the pacing that we see 
the speed at which Mark is going to write and Peter is going to tell, the speed is astounding. But it makes sense if this is Peter's account because that's pretty much how he lived his life, 100 miles an hour without really thinking about it. The word immediately is used over 40 times in this text. It's, over, it's used over 11 times in the first chapter alone, 40 times in the text. And just for context, it's only used 11 times in the rest of the New Testament. So the point of this entire book is this urgency that you're going to hear in Mark's language when he writes it. There's an urgency to it. But I think that the intent of this urgency was to get this message to a suffering people because they were devoid of hope, lacking of hope, and they needed to hear the good news of their Savior. Now, I believe that this book is incredibly important for us today, but I don't want to get ahead of myself, so we'll get started. Now, let's look at Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Here's the thing. We can't miss this first part. I, I do want to camp out here just for a moment while we read these next three verses because I think they're incredibly important. It's easy just to cruise right past this introduction because fast-paced storytelling must mean fast-paced story reading, right? Well, if we do that, we miss some very important details that will help us frame out Mark's intention and the horizon that he is setting. So let's read it. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 says this. <clears throat> the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So several things are very interesting about this beginning. And I believe, again, set the horizon for the rest of the book in the rest of our year as we're reading it. So Mark, in this quoting of the Old Testament, he conflates three different texts. And this is a common practice during this time, especially if you're trying to uh, put together a very particular message. But he mixes Exodus 23.20, he mixes Malachi 3.1, and he mixes Isaiah 43. And he, he mixes them in order. It, it's easy to find. If you go and look up those texts, you can see exactly where he uh, conflated them. But the interesting part is that he gives the full credit of this text to the one that he is placing the most weight on, which is Isaiah 43, 40 verse 3. Now, what makes this part interesting is that Isaiah 40 to 55 is widely regarded as what's called the second exodus. So in other words, in, over this last year, we talked about the first exodus, the big exodus, the book of the Bible where we saw God reveal himself to Moses, and he heard his people crying out in slavery from the Egyptians. He rescued them, miracles of getting them through water and providing for them in the desert when, uh, whenever they, they didn't have anything. The law was given to them. They broke the law. He showed grace to them and gave the law again in a way that was reestablishing the covenant, and he was showing that he desired to be a God amongst his people. Now, Isaiah 40 through 55 is regarded as the second exodus. The people of God, the Israelites, are in captivity by Babylon at this time. And in this portion, as, we re as you read through Isaiah 40 through 55, you see the same, almost the same identical story and the same things happen that you saw in the first exodus. You saw uh, the people of God are held in captivity by Babylon. God manifests his glory 
He, meet, he meets his people on a mountain type, mountaintop just like he did with Sinai. He leads his people through water and the waters do not overcome them. He leads his people through the wilderness by placing a cloud on the front of the caravan and on the back of the caravan to protect them. He provides food and water to this people and promises that they will never go without. And he does this all in a very miraculous way. And now, what, but what happens at the end of Isaiah is different than Exodus. What happens at the end of Isaiah 52 through 55 specifically tell of what's called the suffering servant, a, a man, the God-man, who's going to come and redeem mankind. Now, at the time, the people of Israel would have thought, this is it. God's coming. He's returning. He's going to usher in the new heavens and new earth. We're going to be in heaven forever. Sin's going to be gone, and we're going to reign as the people of God. Now, we know on this side of history that that didn't happen, so it's a big bummer for them, but but it's incredibly important for us now. So in light of Mark's quote of Isaiah, Peter's quote of Isaiah, verse number one in Mark becomes incredibly powerful and shapes the rest of the book. Let's read it again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So by quoting the beginning of the, of the second exodus that pointed to the redemption of sin, Mark was setting the horizon for the entirety of his message from this point on, that Jesus is not just a man, but he is the sovereign Lord and suffering servant that mankind has been waiting for that will lead them out of their captivity of spiritual sin. That Jesus, in the gospel, in his life, he's going to manifest the glory of God among the people, just like they did in Exodus. He's going to deliver his people from spiritual captivity. He will vanquish the children from God's true enemy, which is Satan. He will establish the true kingdom of God. The first line makes no mistake about what the book of Mark is about. It's about Jesus. He is no man like Moses. He is no man like Isaiah. And he is no man like Elijah. Mark doesn't just say, in the beginning, the gospel of Jesus. No. He says, in the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's the Messiah. He's the the coming suffering servant that we talked about. And not just the coming suffering servant, but he's the son of God, the eternal second member of the Trinity who's always existed. This is the man who I'm about to talk about. This beginning of the book drives us relentlessly to the conclusion that we see in Mark chapter 8, 29, which we'll see later on throughout the year, when Jesus asked Peter who he is to him. Mark, number eight, uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 29 says this, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, who's given his account, Peter answered, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God. And then Jesus goes on to say, only only God alone could have revealed this to you. So he's the son of God here to right all wrongs and rescue his people from their slavery. To a people that were suffering at the hands of Nero at this time, these words, these reminders would have been life-giving and hope-restoring. So here's what that means for us today. We live in a world where convenience is king. In other words, we get most things how we want it and when we want it. Everything is on our timeline. And, and honestly, in a world that seems so busy, even amongst Christians, even amongst churches, there isn't a lot of urgency for knowing God and advancing his kingdom. The conveniences of our world has, have made us forget about the dangers that lurk, both material and immaterial. We take things for granted. 
And sure, maybe we aren't being dipped in tar and used as human tiki torches, but that doesn't mean that we live in a safe world. Not only do we, li- not only do we need to live with this kind of intentionality and urgency that Mark is talking about, but we need to do it in a way that we engage with God. And more importantly, with this kind of urgency, we can't afford to wait. We can't afford to say tomorrow to the things that God has called us to do, whether that's talking to your neighbor and showing them the gospel, the one that God's been you know, convicting you about and you just haven't done, or discipling our kids because I just want them to want it organically. That's never going to happen. Also, newsflash, our kids are sinners and they're never just going to want Jesus. We're going to have to show them why they need him and why they want him. We can't afford to say tomorrow to seeking Christ and giving our life to him. We're not promised tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. We ought to have this urgency that Mark talks about. We need the same urgency. And listen, what's, what's great about here, and, and this is, if you're ever going to nerd out and start learning original language, languages, this is why. Because in the text that's quoted here, at the very end of verse 3, whenever he says, prepare the way, that, that word actually says more than just prepare. That word, etormasite, it means more. It's, it's, a, it's an imperative, an aortus imperative, which means not just prepare. It means prepare now. Prepare now. Don't wait. Urgency is now. We must react now. It's, it's got a purpose to it. It's got a weight to it. It's not just prepare the way. It's right now, where you stand, where you are in your life, prepare the way. We need the same urgency that John the Baptist has when we read in this text. Now, John the Baptist is a very unique character who plays a massive role in the New Testament, despite not appearing for very long. Uh, He's the one, uh, John the Baptist is the one that this prophecy talks about in terms of who is coming out of the wilderness to prepare the way. Um, John the Baptist is also very unique in that he knows who Jesus is when he's in the womb. That's incredible. And just so you know, that's literally that text is the reason why we do what we do back in the kids' ministry with even the two-month-old kids. That we're going to teach the gospel to them. We're going to sing the gospel over them. We're going to pray over them because we, because of texts like this, if John the Baptist is capable uh, in the womb of understanding, hey, Jesus just entered the room, then why would we not? Why would we not teach the gospel to all ages? So John the Baptist is very unique there. John the Baptist also didn't know that he was the one that Malachi 4, 5 talked about. So Malachi 4, 5 says that before the Savior will come, Elijah will return. And if you remember in the Old Testament, Elijah never died. He was just taken up by chariots of fire and taken up into heaven. And so Malachi 4, 5 says that before Jesus returns, before the Messiah comes, Elijah will show up again. John the Baptist had no idea that this is him. And honestly, to tell you, tell you the truth, for, for a guy that talked about repentance the way that he did, I don't know how, how he wasn't that self-aware because he dressed exactly like Elijah. They literally wear the same things. They say the same things and they do the same things and they live in the same places. I don't understand the lack of self-awareness when it came to this. Someone literally, they literally asked him, hey, are you Elijah? He's like, no, I'm not him. And it's true, he wasn't him, but Jesus, we learn later on in Matthew 11 that he did come, Jesus did confirm, he came in the spirit of Elijah. 
So he was. So he did fulfill the prophecy. He did lead the way. He did show up leading the way for the Messiah to arrive. But this is, this is, that's one of the areas that separates the Jewish faith and the Christian faith. The Jewish faith is still waiting on Elijah. They're still waiting on him to return. In fact, to this day, when they celebrate their Passover cedar, if you show up to someone's house while they're celebrating it, there will be an empty chair in the room, and you'll be like, hey, is there someone missing? Are we waiting on someone? And they'll be like, yeah, we are waiting on someone, Elijah. That's what that chair means. So they're still waiting on him, which means they're still waiting for a Savior, which is what separates us because we believe that he already came. John the Baptist's existence and ministry set into motion the true second exodus. So there are multiple things, but three specific ones that I believe are important for the Christian today when we look at the life of John. But keep in mind, I'm using the words that I'm about to use in my points very specifically. And by that, I mean, when I use the word Christian, I'm not using it in a pithy way because I couldn't come up with another title. I'm using it because I want to reclaim that title away from the pithy culture use of, cultural use of it. A Christian is by definition a little Christ. In other words, the way that you live, live your life, you ought to look like and emulate Christ so much so when they see you, they see him. That title doesn't carry that weight, that it, the weight that it ought to today. It used to mean something, but now it exists as a gradient from anything from, well, I'm just not an atheist, so I'm, I'm a Christian, because I don't want to say, I don't want to say that God doesn't exist because then I'm, I might go to hell, so I, I'm just going to say I'm a Christian. It, it, you could be that, or you could be very extreme orthodox over here. But all of those and everything in between means Christian, and I want to take that away. I want to reclaim it back for what it meant to be. People, people who look like little Christ, followers of the way, those that love Jesus and follow him. John the Baptist was the first clear example of what it means to be a believer in Christ. So let's keep reading. Mark 1, four, uh, verses 4 and 5. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So the life of John the Baptist was, was marked, uh, no pun intended, by advancing the kingdom. And it's all that he cared to do, to tell of the coming Savior. As a Christian, he wasn't concerned with the things that we're concerned about. He wasn't concerned with how many seasons of the chosen that he has witnessed or getting his end-of-year giving statements in so that way he can get good tax write-offs. wasn't concerned about the next inspirational book he's going to read. He only cared to herald the coming Savior, which leads me to my first point. Christians live with purpose by carrying a distinct message. Mark records with his usual brevity here, with very breakneck speed. John came baptizing in the wilderness, he said. He suddenly appeared, he was baptizing, and he wasn't concerned with the way that he was baptizing. He wasn't concerned about rite or ritual. The message he preached was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, what the original language implies here is that the repentance already took place and then they got baptized. It wasn't they got baptized and then they started repenting. It was a repentance baptism. And you'll see that littered throughout the entirety of the New Testament. People hear the message, they repent, they get baptized. It's an immediate action altogether. The baptism that we see here in the, in the life of John was a preparation for the forgiveness Christ would accomplish by his death and resurrection. 
So when I say Christians live a purposeful life by carrying a distinct message, what I don't mean is doing what John did and just start baptizing everybody in the nearest body of water. I don't mean that. But I do mean that distinct message comes in two forms. That distinct message that we carry comes in two forms. The first one is one that we believe, and the second one is one that we herald. One that we believe in that we ought to be a people of repentance, constantly turning our lives away from sin in a life of autonomy and a life of worship to independence on Jesus. And so what I mean is that this works opposite of the normal world's rhythms of what it means to get good at something. So as a believer, you would think that the more I mature in Christ, the less I should be repenting. I mean, that, that works in natural logic. If I start woodworking, the more and more I do it, as time goes on, the more projects that I do, I should be making less mistakes, making better things, and becoming more efficient at it. That's what logic would tell me. If I play an instrument, I, the more and more I play it, the more and more I learn and sit in front of an instructor, I should be making less and less mistakes. I should be getting better at it. It's, it doesn't work that way for the life of the believer because the life of the believer does not work based on your merit and how good you are. The way that it works for the life of the believer is that as you mature in your faith, you become more and more aware of God's holiness. But the response to that is not you saying, oh, well, I guess I'm holy like that too. No. The response to that is as you become more and more aware of God's holiness, you also simultaneously become just as aware of how unholy you are. And as you become aware of how unholy and sinful you are, your need for the gospel, your need for the cross becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, which means the more and more you mature, the more you become aware of how much you're doing wrong and the more you should be repenting. So maturity in the life of the believer looks opposite of the world. It's not one of how good you get on a, meritor- a meritorious method, but how deep you understand your need for the gospel. That is the message that we carry. The one part of the message that we carry is that we believe that we need Jesus. We really believe it. We don't believe that we're just going to arrive at this place before Christ returns where we don't have to repent anymore. No, in, in fact, I would dare say that if, if you have stopped repenting or slowed down repenting, that you have dropped your need for Jesus. It's the only way that that works. The only thing, it's the only way you can square that theology in the New Testament. But that message that we carry is not just in what we believe, but it's in one that we herald. Now listen, it's, this is one that we proclaim to others around us explicitly. And now listen, the entire country, this is crazy, the entire countryside of Judea came and heard John's message. And not just Judea, but Jerusalem, which was 20 miles away and 4,000 feet above them. So they're walking 20 miles throughout the day, getting beat down by the sun and walking down mountains just to hear some camel man talk about Jesus. That message must have been really good because they're not just traveling 20 miles there. They have to go 20 miles back up the mountain. So this message was incredibly important for these people to listen to. It's a big deal for them to make that trek. And it wasn't just to go see John make them feel bad about themselves. But the truth is, is that their world, just like ours today, was devoid of hope. And they were willing to hear a hope-filled message. 
The same problem that existed then exists now. We live in a world that is devoid of hope and Jesus is the answer. Not the $1.2 billion lottery right now, not the house we desire, the position we want, or the spouse we don't have. None of those things are the answer. Jesus is the answer. And if you spend enough time trying to get to know those around you, whether it be a neighbor, whether it be a coworker, or even a family member that you just haven't really dove deep into a relationship with, you will find the common thread that hope is a moving target unless it's Jesus. Let's keep moving. Mark chapter 1, verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. So our tendency is to, make, is to want to make John's character like that of a modern man, but it won't work because he was not the kind of man that you would put in your presidential cabinet. He was not the kind of man that you would uh, put up as the guy that you want talking, speaking on behalf of your company as a representative. He was a wandering preacher who lived in the wilderness. God chose a forerunner entirely different from the type of people that we would have chosen. Mark helps us take a straight and honest look at this man, this man that is the forerunner. Not only does he appear unusual by today's standards, which is true, he is unusual, but he was also unusual by the standards of his own day. He didn't have credentials. He was not taught or in a formal school with Pharisees or rabbis, and he wore weird clothes and ate weird food. So I'm not saying that we need to live, uh, we must pursue a life that signifies this, uh, this kind of weirdness about us, but what I am saying, which leads me to my second point, that Christians live with a purpose by holding distinct convi- convictions. So if the first way to live a purpose-filled life is by carrying a distinct message, The second way is by holding distinct convictions. So John is described as your typical holy man of the Near East. He was, his clothing was woven of camel's hair and held in place by a leather belt around his waist. This is, like I said, oddly specific when it comes to comparing him to Elijah. Uh, You can see that in 2 Kings. His food consists of locusts. uh, And in Leviticus, we learned that this was a very clean food. It was on the list of clean items to eat and wild honey. And this isn't, some people like to say that that wild honey is from trees, sap that's gathered, and then you get sweet honey out of it. But no, this is wild bees honey, which was also considered clean. John the Baptist lived an intentional life that pointed to the Savior he worshiped. What he wore, how he spoke, what he ate was deeply affected by what his convictions were. He didn't allow the culture of the day to be the dictator of what he believed and how he expressed that belief. He would not, he would not allow the culture to just sweep him with the going current. When John began baptizing, and this is, this is true even for how he, his mode of baptism and the way that he was doing it, because he had a lot of criticism for the way that he was conducting his ministry. When John began baptizing Israelites, the Pharisees, uh, they objected. They declared that the Israelites, the children of Abraham, the chosen people of God, had no need for cleansing. And this sparked a major controversy because they said that the only people that really need cleansing and the people that needed baptism were the Gentiles, the unclean ones. But John would not allow this cultural ideology to sweep and be the riptide by which he decides to do his actions. No, he went to the word of God, which knew that the sin flowed through the seed of man and everyone that has not accepted Jesus Christ is unclean. He knew that. 
And so he wasn't going to allow the cultural trends and the cultural current to shape how he does his ministry. And this is a riptide that we, to this day, cannot ignore. If you are passive about how the culture affects your life, you will be swept away by it. The riptide is too strong. If you've ever been in a riptide in in the ocean, you know you can't just sit there. You have to swim against it, away from it. Get out of it, or it's going to take you. And the same thing goes with the cultural current. We can't allow passivity to dictate our lives or our children's lives. If I, if I could speak to the parents just for a moment, we need to understand our deep responsibility to take hold of who and how we worship and to catechize our children to do the same. We should not be in the business of allowing our children, their desires, their activities, or their schedules, or even our own to dictate how or when we worship God. Nothing should get in the way of that. So over this next year, we need to be a people of intentionality with our time, with our money, and with our families. And friends, it's going to be hard. Over the next year, if you're going to live a life with intentional, distinct convictions and not allow the culture and the busyness of our life to dictate how you live and worship God, then there are going to be some hard decisions you're going to have to make. There are going to be some things that you're going to have to lay on the altar in order to worship God more fully as a family. And it sucks, but it's, but it's what you have to do. Let's keep reading. Mark chapter 1, verses 7 to 8. And he preached, saying, after, he, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In Israel at that time, everyone wore sandals. Everyone did, including the wealthy. And their feet got filthy on the dusty roads that they walked on. Uh, However, for the wealthy, it was beneath their dignity to even take off their own sandals because, well, if your feet are dirty and you take off your sandals, now my hands are going to get dirty. So they would have slaves take their sandals off and wash their feet. But John said he was not even worthy to be the slave that unties Jesus' sandals, which shows the kind of humility that he had. He was very well aware of the God that he served, which leads me to my last point. If the first point was Christians carry a distinct message, the second one that they have distinct convictions, the last one is that Christians live with purpose by worshiping a distinct God. So while John prepared the way for the Messiah, he rightly understood his role in God's plan of redemption. He knew his life wasn't meant for the comforts and conveniences that were offered to him. In fact, you, we, we need to know, John, John the Baptist was famous. I mean, like, viral famous. Like, if he had a social media, the dude was big. All of Judea, all of Judea was coming to see him. Jerusalem, 20 miles away, were coming to see him. Dude was famous, but he didn't allow that to get to him. He knew his life wasn't meant for those kinds of conveniences that likely came his way. In fact, he would go on to say in John 3, 30, which we don't see in this text, but he says, he must increase, Christ must increase, but I must decrease. His ministry was not about himself. It was rightly centered on Jesus Christ. The problem is, is that at times we can be so fixated on the quality of our life. And if we if we get so fixated on how nice and convenient and comfortable things are, 
the result is one of two things, and they're both bad. The best case scenario is that we worship the other things. They become the source of life for us, which will inevitably fail and not work out. The worst case scenario, though, which is the harder one to reveal, because I, I found if you start worshiping things, you will see their failure pretty quickly. We're less apt to see our own failure. So the worst case scenario is that we worship ourselves and believe that we are God and that everything in this world serves our purpose. And so it's less about worshiping things and more about worshiping yourself. And this is pride, the most dangerous of all sins. J.C. Ryle says it this way. It is a dreadful fact, whether we like to allow it or not, that pride is one of the commonest sins which beset human nature. We are all born Pharisees. We all naturally think far better of ourselves than we ought. We all naturally imagine that we deserve something better than we have. It is an old sin. It began in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve thought they had not got everything that their merits deserved. It is a subtle sin. It rules and reigns in many a heart without being detected and can even wear the garb of humility. It is a most soul-ruining sin. It prevents repentance, keeps man back from Christ, checks brotherly love, and nips in the bud spiritual desires. Let us watch against it and be on our guard. Of all garments, none is so graceful, none wears so well, and none is so rare as true humility. To live a life that has deep purpose in it, we must be a people that are acutely aware of our need for Jesus, that we must never get to a point where we're either, either we feel like we can exist without him or that we've bought into our own press that somehow we're good. We need to be a people worshiping a very distinct God. And he's, he's distinct in this. For one, distinct in that he's the only one that we worship, but he's also distinct from any other God that you could find. Because in the same, out of the same side of the, the Bible's mouth, if you will, where John says, I'm unfit to even untie the sandal of this Messiah, Jesus on the other side is saying, yeah, but let me wash my disciples' feet. That he's not a slave, he's a king. And he's choosing to wash our feet. He's choosing to serve us. We serve and worship a distinct God. And we need to be a people that actively fight against the worship of things, others, and self. We need to be a people that have a life centered on Christ and nothing else. And this starts with the acknowledgement that we must decrease in order for Christ to increase. And I can tell you this, like I said earlier, the more and more you get closer to Jesus, the more you will repent. The more you will realize how things have just gone awry that are askew. The more that you set aside Christ in your life as the distinct God that you worship, the more and more you will look like him. That selflessness, the patience, the love, the care, the peace that you desire, it's all found in Christ. It's all found in Jesus. I'll close with this. The truth is, is that I think, especially starting up this new year, that we, and I include myself in this, we have some work to do. And we need, to, we need to ask ourselves, what area needs our attention? Is it the message that we carry? Have we struggled to just believe this message? Did, we, did you spend all of 2022 just not walking with Jesus at all, and now you want to start a new year, you just don't know how? Well, friend, I, I can tell you this. You can go boldly and confidently before the throne of Jesus. It doesn't matter if it's a new year or not. 
New day, new, new second, new hour, new month. It doesn't matter. He's ready for you now. Is it the message that you carry and you just haven't told it? That you feel like the Lord has put it on your heart to tell the people around you about this wonderful Jesus that you worship and you just haven't done it? Maybe, maybe it's the time. Has it been passivity towards convictions? Have you just been cruising along and allowing the culture to sweep you by? Or is it centering your life around your worship to God? Has you or your family's schedule gotten the best of you? These are important questions that I think that we need to answer. And the answer is not tomorrow. The answer is today. The urgency that we see in the Bible, the answer is today. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today in the areas of our heart that have wandered, that don't have the peace that it ought to, that is ridden with anxiety, is ridden with secret sin. God, we just ask that your spirit would draw us today. It would reveal those areas. If we don't see them, God, reveal it. If we do, give us the courage to walk closer to you. Give us the courage to make the decisions that we need to make in order to worship you both individually and as families. God, let this be a new year and not just because it's 2023. Let it be a a year that is a marked difference in our life and in our love for you and our love for others. God, help us to live with the kind of urgency that Mark bids us to. Help us, God. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.